Well, it's been three weeks since we've been here. I will catch you briefly up before we jump into our reading in Acts. When last we left Acts, Peter had miraculously escaped jail, knocked on the door of, uh, of what we think was the house that had the upper room. He came in, explained his deliverance from prison, and left for another place, as how it says. That catch very brief, very brief catching up. Today, I've titled this sermon, Eaten by Worms. I was trying to, I often like to have a clever title, but I figured uh, playing pinochle on your snout was not possibly the best lead into this study because this is a very serious study. It is really a serious study today. So uh, I call it Eaten by Worms. Uh, It is an obvious fact that the world we live in is ruled by the rich and the powerful. And that only makes sense. It's an old joke that the golden rule is uh, he who has the gold makes the rules. And it's actually really true. The powerful, the kings, those people who have risen to be in charge of our societies make the rules. And it has always been this way. Uh, The rulers of nations have been warrior kings since the beginning of time. They've uh, unified peoples into armies of conquest. It's a relatively new thing, and I I really mean relatively new. Uh, The last hundred years or so, uh, that policy wonks have been in charge of countries. It was shocking to the world, remember, when George Washington turned down the kingship of the new United States of America, that he instead served two terms as president and went away instead of becoming a warrior king in the line of others like David, uh, the various Caesars of Rome were all warrior kings, Charlemagne, and those all were before George Washington's time, of course, but afterwards Napoleon Bonaparte was the same way. Charles de Gaulle was a general president of France after World War II. So was Dwight Eisenhower general of all the armies became president the rich and the powerful have always from the beginning of time been in charge of the nations of the world and even before the start of the Christian church it has been noted that those who love and follow God are not the rich and powerful And for just as long, Christians have wondered about why the ways of the world favor the rich and the powerful. We see it today with the Bill Gateses, with the Warren Buffetts, with the George Soroses, these rich people who do not follow God, who could care less about God, yet seem to be favored with the blessings of wealth. Why does the sun seem to shine brighter on those who either neglect or even outright despise God? What gives with this? Is it as the Apostle Paul pointed out in 2 Corinthians that Satan is the God of the world and favors his own? 
Is that the reason? And I'm not one to go all flip Wilson on you and say that uh, the devil made me do it, but there's a little bit of that in there. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus explains the thinking of the rich and the powerful. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the natural man, the man without God, relies on his own strength, his own power, his own riches. These he treasures... And it is in these things where his heart lies. A Christian's heart lies in another place. A Christian's heart um, lies in the weightier matters of the law, in goodness, in mercy, in justice, in charity. These are a Christian's treasure, and the pursuit of these things seems to leave no time for the acquirement of money, and of power. There is instead only time for the things of God. In Luke 6, 20-26, known as the Beatitudes, Jesus remarks on, on these two mindsets. It says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So it is for the believers, the poor, the hungry, those who weep and are hated and excluded and reviled for standing up for the things of God. But Jesus goes on and speaks of the world's darlings. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. The winners of this world have enjoyed their wealth for a time in this world. In the here and now. But does God ever punish the wicked ruler? In their own time, do they ever live to see their own folly, to be, to experience God's judgment? Well, we know about Saul, the first king of uh, Israel. God didn't really want Israel to have a king, but he gave them one when they asked. Saul lived to see God's anointing removed from him and given to David, his basically despised son-in-law. Saul and his God-fearing son Jonathan both fell in battle. Nebuchadnezzar was strolling 
in his garden gazing out on the great city of Babylon. Neil's big, big regret during his tour in Iraq was that he did not get to get out and go visit sites like Babylon and, and Baghdad and see these areas. Uh, it hurt his historian soul. To not, but anyway, Nebuchadnezzar is gazing out on the great city of Babylon that he created, he thought, of his own hands and only his hands. And in that moment of pride, God removed the king's sanity and he ate grass grazing in the fields for the next seven years. King Ahab was the worst and the most evil king of any who came before him. His wife was Jezebel, and you really have to wonder about a king who would marry someone named Jezebel. You know, I suggest you don't do that, just between you and me. Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard, and when Naboth refused to sell it to him, Jezebel arranged to have Naboth murdered, and God told Ahab that he would die in the same place as Naboth. And the dogs who licked up Naboth's blood would lick up his. We've recently seen Herod the Great die after ordering the massacre of the innocents, trying to kill the king of the Jews that the Magi came to sacrifice, uh, with sacrifices for, with, with presents. And, they, and uh, Herod learned of someone called the king of the Jews found out from them where he was supposed to have been born, and had all the babies killed there. And Herod paid the price that year. That brings us to our scripture for today, seeing that we're only, you know, ten minutes into this and we're still in the introduction. So now, that brings us to our scripture for today, which is Acts 12, 18 through 25, where Herod the Great's grandson, Herod Agrippa, meets God's judgment. I'll read through the whole scripture and then we'll go back verse by verse. Now when day came, there was, remember, Peter has escaped jail that night. So when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day... Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat among the, upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God, and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, and breathed his last. And then we have a tagline, and we won't be saying much about this today, because it leads into the further adventures in Acts, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. 
bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. That gets us through. I read the last simply because it gets us through chapter 12. As we look at this, let's first quickly dispose of the Roman soldiers. Oh, that's right, Herod already did. Very quickly disposed of them. Sorry about that. Verse 18 says, Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. No little disturbance here is an understatement. It's something that that um, Luke likes to use in his writings. It's an understatement that uh, focuses your mind on what is actually going on. The Roman soldiers frantically turned the prison inside out in their search, but Peter was nowhere to be found. What's worse is that Herod Agrippa, invested as he was in Peter's intended death, is involved. Blame is going to be assigned. Verse 19a says, And after Herod searched for them and did not find them, he examined the sentries. It's uh, safe to say that Herod did not personally search for Peter, but ordered his own guard to join that search. Uh, After failing to turn up Peter in the prison and in all the usual places in Jerusalem that Peter is expected to be found, it says Herod examined the guards. The word used is actually cross-examined because he was not accepting their word for what had gone on. And I'm certain they told the exact truth. They had no idea what happened with Peter. Um, Supernaturally, God had kept them out of the escape. They neither abetted it, they did not intentionally sleep on duty. But you can see where this cross-examination was going. Verse 19b says, and ordered that they should be put to death. Now this is rare for a translation for the ESV because that's not what it says. It's The Greek actually says he ordered that they be led away and Uh, You're reading the NASB, I believe that's what your version says, that they be led away. Well, that is a euphemism for led away to their death. I mean, we get to the same place, but usually the ESV is a little bit closer. The Code of Justinian in 9.4.4 says that a Roman guard who allowed a prisoner to escape was subject to the prisoner's sentence. Whatever was going to be done to the prisoner, if you let them escape, could be done to you. It didn't have to be, but Herod was a Herod. So this is why in uh, Acts 16, when Paul and Silas were uh, freed from prison by an earthquake, we're going to be covering that soon, but they were freed, and they yelled out to the guard, don't kill yourself. The guard had a sword out. He was going to fall on it and kill himself. It's because if the prisoners were gone, He was going to take their sentence. And we'll see also in uh, uh, Acts 27, uh, when Paul is shipwrecked on his way to Rome, that instead of letting the prisoners escape, the guards were going to kill them. Okay, That was okay. You could kill the prisoners. You couldn't let them escape. And it's only through the grace of God that a guard knew that Paul was being helpful and kept the other guards from killing the prisoners. 
So that explains some future things that are going to be happening. This section concludes, Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. The only thing to mention here is Caesarea was also part of Judea. And saying he left Judea was just another way to say Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was often identified as Judea because it was the most important city in Judea, where the temple was located, where the ancient kings had always resided. So saying, for Luke to say he went down from Caesarea, uh, went down from Judea to Caesarea, just says that he was going from Jerusalem. And that brings us to the death of Herod. And this is the interesting part for today. And I liked a lot of this. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. History does not record why Herod was angry with uh, with these two cities. Josephus, who you know was a secular Jewish historian, who was writing about Jewish history for the sake of the Romans, so that the Romans could understand what their rebellious backwater was thinking has a remarkably similar account of this event. However, one difference is that Josephus has no reference to Herod being angry with Tyre and Sidon. So this has led scholars to say, these two accounts, which are so very similar, Luke was a historian, Josephus was a historian, neither one of them had personal knowledge of what happened with with Herod Agrippa here. They're both working off other sources. Their sources are not the same sources. And uh, historians can tell that. But the accounts are remarkably similar. Verse 20b says, and we're going to be covering a little bit of that. Verse 20b says, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, And they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and we'll stop there for a second, Uh, Tyre and Sidon sent a delegation, a peace delegation, to Herod at Caesarea, and they persuaded, it says, Blastus, the king's chamberlain. You should change the persuaded, uh, according to scholars, to, to bribed, okay? The peace delegation came to Blastus and bribed him, to get them to see Herod Agrippa. And verse 20c goes on to say, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. The king's anger with Tyre and Sidon may have simply been that these were three powerful maritime cities in the same area. Uh, Caesarea was a little bit southern, But Tyre and Sidon were to the north in the areas that had been Philistine areas. They were both, all three, both all three, uh, powerful uh, trading economies. And it might simply have been an economic reason why uh, Herod was angry with Tyre and Sidon. Herod's trump card, however was the breadbasket that was the region of Galilee fed large portions of not only Israel, but other countries like Tyre and Sidon. The food that was grown in Galilee could be used as a wedge against Tyre and Sidon by Herod. 
And those two cities feared that Herod was going to starve them. So they asked for peace. Herod relented and gave a speech uh, to all the assembled people. History does not record what was said in the speech. We have no idea. So verse 21a says, On an appointed day, and people speculate that it was uh, with the time frame of Peter's escape and the time taken to get back to uh, Caesarea, that this was on Herod's birthday. So uh, think that he was giving a birthday speech. It goes on to say, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne. Now, Herod's robes were spectacular, everyone says. Either made of silver, or possibly silver-colored thread, but that's not what uh, Josephus had to say, and we'll see what he had to say. But it reflected the sun, and it was dazzling in the light. Josephus has this account of it. On the second day of the shows, and I don't know what the shows were, but it's something going on with Herod and the uh, delegation from Tyre and Sidon. Agrippa put on a robe made of silver throughout, of altogether wonderful weaving, and entered the theater at break of day. There the silver shone and glittered wonderfully as the sun's first rays fell on it, and its resplendence inspired a sort of fear and trembling in those who gazed on it. In verse 22, Luke records, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not of a man, which was really, you know, they were just sort of buttering Herod up, okay? They didn't really mean that, but it was convention at the time. Josephus says of this, Immediately his flatterers called out from various directions, using language which boded him no good, for they addressed him as a god, and invoked him with the cry, Be gracious unto us. Hitherto we have reverenced thee as a man, but henceforth we acknowledge thee to be of more than mortal nature. Uh, Remember, scriptures are written in brevity because paper was expensive. Josephus, much like Charles Dickens uh, 2,000 years later, was being paid by the word. So he fleshes these things out just a little bit more. Verse 23, and Luke says, Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus says a little more on this also, adding an interesting detail from the life of Herod. Josephus says, He did not rebuke them, nor did he repudiate their impious flattery. But soon afterwards he looked up and saw an owl sitting on a rope above his head and immediately recognized it as a messenger of evil as it had on a former occasion been a messenger of good. And a pang of grief pierced his heart. At the same time, he was seized by a severe pain in his belly, which began with a most violent attack. He was carried quickly into the palace. And when he had suffered continuously for five days, from the pain in his belly, he died 
in the 54th year of his age and the seventh of his reign. This was from Antiquities 19.8.2 in case you want to go and look it up just to let you know. So, you ask, what's the deal with the owl? Okay, my mind always goes to these little details. What's the deal with the owl? Okay, he looked up and he saw an owl. Well, Josephus in the Antiquities at 18.6.7 says, When he had been thrown into chains some years before by order of Tiberius, who was a Caesar, of course, he leaned against a tree on which an owl sat. A German fellow prisoner told him that the bird betokened an early release and great good fortune, but that if he ever saw it again, he would have but five days longer to live. Okay, that's the owl. The owl was a harbinger of doom for Herod. So, who was right about the cause of death of Herod Agrippa? Josephus, who said he died of a stomach ache. Uh, after five days or Luke the beloved of physician so let's you know throw that in there who said he was eaten by worms unfortunately for Herod they were both right Caesarea was an area I just told you it was a bread basket of Galilee great farming area lots of sheep lots of cattle grazing Unfortunately, that meant that there were also tapeworms in the area. The tapeworm of choice for this area was called the dogworm because dogs would pick it up and spread it to their human companions. A tapeworm. I'm glad you haven't eaten. Have you just eaten? Good, I'm glad you haven't. A tapeworm, a dogworm, could grow up to 18 inches long, lived in your intestines. Eventually, it would lay an egg sac in your intestines, which would then be covered by a cyst protecting the egg sac. When the cyst ruptured, you might die immediately from the effects if you were lucky. Agrippa was not lucky. When the scolex, which is the word used by Luke here for worm, it does not say worm, it says scolex, which is the uh, cyst-covered egg sac. When the scolex ruptures, as many as five million tapeworms are released into your body that immediately go into a feeding frenzy and start eating you alive from the inside out. And eventually, they eat their way completely outside of your body. According to medical journals, this will take up to five days to happen. Now I've got to find my place in here again. Just to let you know, the word here used was scolex. Put that in your mind because this is important for when I finish this up. Verses 24 through 25. I've just said that that was a connecting passage, so we won't cover that anymore. That is the death of Herod. Herod was eaten by worms in a most gruesome fashion. Now, we live in a world now where evil leaders permeate everything. Everything. And I do mean everything from schools to libraries to churches to hospitals 
And it goes without saying that evil permeates our governmental institutions. And I have never been a person to say that evil is everywhere, but evil currently is everywhere. Did Herod Agrippa ever think that God would strike him down? Herod had already killed James for no reason, just he wanted James out of the way. God does not remove every evil leader in the world. He didn't even remove Herod Agrippa for the first offense. Did Herod Agrippa think anything was going to happen to him? Did, did Saul really think that God, after having him anointed as a king, would remove him? Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful person in the world. God made him eat grass for seven years. Do any of our leaders truly believe that God will hold them accountable? The answer is no. They really don't. They don't believe that God is going to judge them in this life or in the time to come. They really don't. No, they believe that's folly. They do not even believe there is a God, which is why they don't believe it. That is what gives us things such as the transgender nonsense we see going on today. That's how our esteemed leaders shove something as perverted as drag queen story hour down our throats. And then some Christian leaders say, you know, Jesus loved everybody. Jesus was inclusive. Jesus would attend a drag queen story hour. I have heard that from Christian leaders. I'm here to agree with them. Jesus would have attended it in the same way he socially interacted with the money changers at the temple, stopping to braid a whip on his way in. Jesus is the Word of God. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God. Here's what Jesus said in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, do you think that God... Do you think that Jesus changed his mind in the last 3,000 years on that? Has Jesus become more enlightened? Those pushing this transgender agenda are evil, as are those pushing the gay agenda. In Leviticus 20.13, Jesus says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman... Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Has God changed his mind? Or is God the same today, yesterday, and forever? Which is it? His word no longer applies? Really? And those in the medical community who see transgender surgery of children as a great source of income, not just through the surgery, but for the rest of their lives as they struggle with the horror that is committed on them 
Are they not evil? I've read their quotes that they thought they were saying in private that came out. I have this word for you from the very lips of Jesus, the Lord of all, the Lord of the universe, Mark 9, 42 through 48. And I want you to pay attention to this. There are two verses in this that are missing from the best translations. Verse 44 and verse 46 of what I read to you are not in there. There's a reason for that. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck as he were thrown into the sea. Being thrown into the sea is the easy way out. And I want you to pay attention, as this is said, for those who harm children. And if cutting off body parts and making them spend the rest of their life paying for surgery and treatment is not harming children and a sin, I do not know what is. But being thrown into the sea is not the fate that awaits them in God's judgment. That is too easy. Verse 43 says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Verse 44 is not there. But note that being crippled for all eternity, being crippled for all eternity is better than what awaits those who harm children. For this is all still just one thought. Verse, uh, like I say, verse 44 is not there. Verse 45 says, And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame with two feet than to be thrown into hell. Okay? Being lame. Not having a foot in Jesus' day. Remember the stories? Men lying on a mat, begging for the rest of their lives. It would be better for you to be a beggar for all eternity, lying on a mat, unable to move, than to harm a child. Again, verse 46 is missing. Verse 47 says, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Listen. What sin are we talking about? There is only one sin that is talked about here. That is harming children. There is only one sin in this passage. People like to separate it. People like to say, oh, you know, you harm a child, you know, better to have a millstone. No. All of this deals with the sin of harming children. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. So the point is, so if your hand or foot or eye or any part of you causes a child to sin... It would be better for you to destroy those body parts. Why? Well, not because you'll be thrown into the deepest sea with a millstone around your neck, but because Jesus promises that you'll be thrown into hell, and as verse 48 says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Guess what that word worm there is in this? It's not worm, folks. Go back to our old friend Herod Agrippa and the skolex in his stomach. 
Jesus hearkens back. Well, actually, it hadn't happened yet to her Herod Agrippa. This is what Jesus says. He says, the fate that you are going to face is an eternity of five million tapeworms gnawing your insides out. It is going to be that bad. That is God's judgment on evil leaders who harm children and lead them astray. And if what's being done to children nowadays is not harming children and leaving them astray, explain to me please what it is, because I don't know. An eternity of being eaten from the inside out is what Jesus compares their punishment to. And it might not be comparison. Jesus adds this in his side. Oh, and it's hot there too. Okay. Where the fire is not quenched. That's an aside. Being thrown into hell is an aside from Jesus on what people who harm children and cause them to sin do. Jesus made the issue as clear as he possibly could. The reason those two verses are not in our Bible is because they were, that verse I just quoted you, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched because the early fathers inserted it into this passage to make sure you know what Jesus was talking about. They repeated that line that Jesus said so you know three times the warning that Jesus gave you about leading children into sin and doing them harm. It's your choice. As I sum up, God, or five million tapeworms, feasting on you for eternity. Back in the Old Testament, it says, choose wisely, choose life. And on that cheery note, let's pray. Lord, you know I, I don't preach a sermon like that very often. I don't probably get worked up enough as I should. If you judged this country today as you did countries like Sodom and Gomorrah, cities, if you judge us the same way and send fire down, I don't really think any of us could say anything but what took you so long. Lord, I pray for repentance from our leaders. I pray for repentance from us. I pray that Christians will once again search after goodness and mercy and justice and insist on them in our public and national life, Lord. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.